Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are divided and broken in so many ways, right? As a nation, it starts with the political landscape, Republicans, Democrats, red states, blue states, conservatives, liberals. The September 21st, 2020 issue of Time Magazine has an article entitled, Apart, Not Alone, and author David French writes this, it's clear that partisan Americans dislike each other a great deal. We live separately, snarling at each other across a growing divide. The result is a politics of fear and rage, where policy differences often take a back seat to the list of grievances that red possess against blue and blue against red. In the smash Broadway hit musical Hamilton, in the aftermath of the American Revolution, George Washington quotes Micah 4.4 when he says, everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Safe in this nation we've made, he adds. Yeah, we're we're still not there yet as a nation. On social media, uh, there has been increasing outrage and polarization. It's easier to spout off our opinions and tear down others whose ideals and values are, well, let's just face it, they're just wrong, right? But we don't have to look each other in the eyes. We don't have to acknowledge their humanity. We just type something in and hit send. Even in our own denomination, the United Methodist Church, we're becoming less and less united. It's mirroring the division in our political spheres as well. Conservatives call themselves traditionalists. Liberals call themselves progressives. And a denomination that was once seen as a big tent church, meaning there's room enough for everyone despite our theological opinions, well, it's about to break up. Now, division and disagreement is not new to us Methodists. Our denomination has struggled over the centuries uh, to come to grips with issues such as slavery and racism, the role of women in the church, how to deal with the difficult subject of war and peace, amongst others. These, These issues have split the church at various times in our history. Currently, our denomination is wrestling with the issue of human sexuality and the role that our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters play in the life of the church. On May 1st of this year, a new denomination will be formed called the Global Methodist Church. Some of our more conservative brothers and sisters will start the process of breaking away um, and joining this new entity. It appears that reconciliation is no longer possible within our denomination, at least on this subject of human sexuality. The Apostle Paul was all about reconciliation. In the first century AD, he had come out of Judaism to become one of the leading um, evangelists in Christianity. Now, it might be surprising to hear that the early church struggled with their relationships between Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews within the faith. You see, Christianity started, everyone was Jewish followers of Jesus. But then, uh, as the gospel started spreading around the Mediterranean and beyond, those without Jewish backgrounds or Gentiles came to the faith as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19, Paul writes this, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. 
Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. The message and ministry of reconciliation, Paul says. Paul longed for that rift between the Jerusalem church, which was made up almost exclusively of Jewish followers of Jesus, and and the Gentile Christians. He longed for that rift to be healed. Why? Because Christ died for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Welcome to the fifth week in our Lenten sermon series entitled, Before All Things. And we're just two weeks away from Easter Sunday, friends. The Christian season of Lent is is this time of self-reflection, renewal, of drawing closer to God through spiritual disciplines. And we've been working our way through two chapters of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. These two chapters have been focused on the topics of stewardship and generosity. You see, there was a special collection that Paul had started among some of his newer, i.e. Gentile, churches in in the Mediterranean region. And the goal was to make a substantial gift to help the poor in Jerusalem. And by doing so, Paul hoped that, that this would begin to heal the rift that had formed in the early church between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And it was indeed supposed to be an expression of obedience, faithfulness, and generosity. Now, we come to the very end of our reading in these two chapters. Today, as Zach read for us earlier, we're looking at 2 Corinthians 9, 10 to 15. Next week is Palm Sunday, our traditional dramatic reading of the last week of Jesus' life. And we will be firmly in Holy Week, with Pastor John leading us on Monday, Thursday here in our sanctuary, and then joining together with Christ our Savior UMC in Quartz Hill and Lancaster UMC at Lancaster Sanctuary on Good Friday, before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday right here at 9 and 11 a.m. And all three of those services Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the 9 o'clock Easter service will also be live-streamed as well. So if you need to connect with us online, we've got you covered. Last week, Paul started to bring his message to a conclusion by getting to the heart of what generosity is. In uh, verses 6 and 8 of chapter 9, he says this, The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. Well, Paul continues that line of thought in verse 10 from today. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvestness of your righteousness. Harvestness. Harvest of your I like harvestness, though. That, that should be a new word. Enjoy the harvestness of today, right? Mitzi Minor 
in her uh, Smythe and Helwey's commentary on 2 Corinthians, uh, remarks that these provisions by Paul reflect an ancient wisdom and practice. You see, for the very first consideration of harvest in the ancient Near East was always for the seed and the grain that you would need for next season, right? Only after a sufficient amount of seeds and grain have been set aside for next year, then could you use the surplus for food or to sell to others. Paul is saying a couple things here in this single verse. For starters, it's a reminder that everything comes from God, right? The seeds and grain that eventually become food and bread, that comes from God. But second, this is about generosity and stewardship, remember? Too often we have this scarcity mentality when it comes to giving. We worry that we won't have enough to provide for ourselves and our family. And and so we hold back from what we could be giving as a blessing to others. And I totally get that, especially at a time like now in the midst of a global pandemic when prices are going crazy and we don't know what's coming next. But Paul reminds the Corinthians and us that when we give... When we're generous, God supplies and multiplies our seed. So we'll not only have enough for next season, meaning God will give us the material means necessary to continue to give generously, but our own spirits will be refreshed and renewed. And we will reap the blessings that come from the the righteousness of being generous. You see, when we have a scarcity mentality, we think it's up to us and, and what we can put together to survive, but when we have an abundance mentality, when we have a gospel mentality, we're reminded that God has a plan to play in this process, and we put our trust in God, not merely ourselves. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. You will be enriched, says Paul, and he echoes uh, earlier passages of Scripture as well. Deuteronomy 15.10, give liberally and be ungrudging when you do, so for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Proverbs 22.9, Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with the poor. Psalm 112, verse 9 says, They have distributed freely, they have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. So there's there's a lot that we can receive when we're generous, right? When we're enriched, as Paul says, in every way. And the scriptures back that up, as we just saw. But, But even more importantly, writes Paul, is what God will receive. And God will receive thanksgiving. Now, of course, those who are on the receiving end of the generosity, they will be thankful, right? But also those who see the results of that generosity will be thankful. And those who are generous will be blessed. And in that blessing, they also will be thankful. And who is the recipient of all this thanksgiving? Well, of course, Paul says it's God. It's God. And when you think about it, thanksgiving is ultimately a form of worship. So God is both the source of all human generosity. He is before all things. And God is also the recipient of praise and thanksgiving that follows from all generous actions. And even if people don't realize it, when they are saying, well, thank God for that, they are giving God worship and honor. 
Verse 13, through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he is giving you. Paul's calling this, this collection project a, a, a test for the Corinthians, right? I mean, we can say we believe that something is true, but it's only when we actually put actions to our beliefs that we prove that it is true, right? What do they say? It's one thing to, walk, to talk the talk, but you've got to be able to walk the walk. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to walk the walk, to literally put their money where their mouth is, to finish the collection that they said they would do for the poor in Jerusalem. But it's more than just following through on a promise. Paul sees this as an expression of the gospel, that when we're generous, we reflect God's image and God's goodness. For God is, above all things, a generous and loving God whose grace is far surpassing anything we could deserve or expect. And so God created us in God's image to be generous and loving with grace. The Macedonians got this, and they gave abundantly to this offering. Paul is now hoping that the Corinthians, and us as well, will follow suit. Paul sees this entire collection as an opportunity to bring healing and reconciliation and unity to the early church. That, that when the Jerusalem Christians receive this amazing outpouring, this financial gift, their, their hearts will be filled with thanksgiving and love. And they'll give God praise, of course, but they'll also be drawn closer to the Christians in Corinth and Macedonia and all of the churches, the Gentile churches that gave to their needs. And together, Jew, Jewish and Christian or Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus will be able to share the gospel of love and grace with the whole world. Because truly, that's what the kingdom of God is all about a generous outpouring of love and grace. Throughout the series, I've been uh, mentioning a churchwide poll on generosity that uh, 80 of us participated in last November. And one of the questions asked this. If generosity can be defined as giving to others, which type of giving do you personally see as most strongly associated with generosity? Select one. Well, 39% of us said it's service, giving of our time uh, to help those in need. 29% of us said it's emotional or relational support. And we're thinking about those friendship factors, you know, those those relationships that from time to time do require time and energy, that we are there for the people we love and that love us and that need us. 26% of us said money or financial support. All great answers. There's no right or wrong answer in this. Where do you fall on this? What, how do you live out your generosity most frequently? Last week, I reminded us about our giving journeys, right? This opportunity to look back over the course of our lives and define six to ten events or incidents that help shape our understandings of money and stewardship and what it means to be generous. These could be positive or negative experiences. But it's a wonderful exercise for us to do for a couple of reasons. One, it forces us to go back and to look at how our past has influenced our feelings, our thoughts, our opinions our practices on how we give today. But also, it reminds us that giving is a journey. It's not just something we do, it's something we grow into and we, we learn and we develop over the course of our lives. So, 
I would like you to be making, making your list, six to ten events, and then try to discern what was it, what was that insight that each event taught you about money, giving, or stewardship. If you haven't started yet, it's not too late. This is a great activity to do this week as we uh, gear up for Holy Week and Easter. And then once you get it typed up or written down, put it, print it out and put it somewhere that you'll see it. Maybe on your refrigerator, maybe somewhere in your bathroom, maybe by your nightstand. Somewhere that you'll see it so that every time you pass it, you'll pause and you'll ask God, what next do you want to teach me? What, what next lesson do you have for me about generosity and giving and stewardship? As Paul was writing to his beloved congregation in Corinth, he saw this collection for the Jerusalem Christians as vitally important for a number of reasons. First, it, it reflected God's graciousness to us, right? That God has given us so much. But second, he believed with all his heart that it would help bring unity and reconciliation within the church. Hmm. Evidently, that's something everyone needs, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today. Reverend Heather Murray Elkins is, was one of my preaching professors while I attended Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey. In her book, The Holy Stuff of Life, Heather recounts this true story of grace and reconciliation in her life. It was a Sunday afternoon when she got the call at the seminary. Heather was the acting academic dean, and she was catching up on paperwork on a Sabbath, of all else, uh, when the call came in. The wife of one of her colleagues was in intensive care following exploratory surgery. It was not looking good. Her cancer had spread. There's nothing more they can do. So she called the dean, who was away at, the con at a conference. He instructed her, being a United Methodist pastor, to go and provide pastoral care to this woman, which normally wouldn't have been a problem for Heather, except this was the wife of her enemy. You see, this woman's husband who was not only one of my seminary professors, but both he and his wife attended the United Methodist Church that I was the student assistant pastor at for three years while I was in seminary. This man had written a public uh, rebuke of a controversial worship service that Heather had participated in. In fact, he had said it was not a Christian worship service, but actually goddess worship and against Christianity. That eventually led to a lawsuit, to lawsuit threats for Heather, charges of slander, letters to the seminary's board of trustees, a public hearing before 600 members of Heather's annual conference, and she wasn't even the primary target of that letter. Not only that, but her young adult son, overwhelmed by the swirling tumult that this had on the family, took a bottle filled with 500 milligrams of Valium from the pharmacy where he worked, and ingested 35 of them before passing out. He survived the overdose, thank God, but had to face the legal ramifications of his actions. And all of this could be traced back to the actions of this woman's husband. Every fiber of Heather's being said, run away from this. You do not have to do this. But she hung up the phone and decided that she would get it over with. Her plan was simple. 
go to the hospital, find something beautiful in the gift shop, go to ICU, offer a prayer, and then get out as soon as possible. Heather remembered that this woman had the reputation of being artistic and a free spirit. In fact, the story even went that after visiting Hawaii in the early 70s, she came back to Drew, the seminary, and taught the faculty how to do the hula. Well, in a gift shop near the hospital, she found something that might serve as a means of grace. It was a woman's figure outlined in a copper, uh, copper metal votive candle. The woman's hands were lifted up as if in prayer. Heather imagined her doing the holy hula, backlit with a flame of prayer, and so she asked that it would be wrapped quickly because visiting hours ended in 30 minutes. The saleswoman obliges, and she says, Oh, I am so glad you found our goddess votive. She is just one of my favorites. And Heather said her heart sunk. Um, Does it say goddess anywhere on the candle? The saleswoman doesn't know. Would you like me to unwrap it and check? No, no, time is too precious. Only 20 minutes until visiting hours uh, close. So no, this will have to do. And as she leaves, all she can think to herself is she is about to give a goddess votive as a gift to a dying woman whose husband has accused Heather of corrupting the service of Holy Communion with goddess worship. It's just great. dreading what she'll encounter when she gets there. I mean, she doesn't even know if this woman will remember who she is. Heather's eyes first fall on her husband, who's sitting on the far side of the room in ICU. Heather, it's so good to see you, says the woman, and she really sounded like she meant it. And for the next 20 minutes or so, Heather says she, this woman, spoke about the artists she loved, the music she remembered, the beauty of California. They used to live there. Heather even asked her about her trip to Hawaii and about the seminary dance lesson that she gave. All the while, her husband sat absolutely still and never said a word. An orderly came to check on the fluids that were prolonging her life and keeping the pain at bay, so Heather shifted in her chair a little closer, and she was ready to give the closing prayer and get out of there. When she did this, though, her bag toppled over, and the gift fell out onto the floor, and she said, oh, is that a gift for me? As if she was a young girl again, this woman in the bed. Uh, well, um, it, 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 it's just a small token, said Heather. You should better open it at home. It's a candle, but of course, you know, I should have remembered that, you know, oxygen and no flames allowed. It's nothing really. It's something just reminded me of women and prayer and, and the hula. And she says, I realize I was just babbling at this point. Her husband rises for the first time, and he stretches out his hand for the gift. My wife would like to see it. Heather knows no one will believe her version of this story, right? As she watches the wrappings come off, and all she can think of is, please no labels, please no labels, please no labels. He holds out the copper outline of the woman for his wife to see. Oh, it's so lovely, she says. I'll put it where I can see it when I get home. Which is a sweet thing to say, but Heather knew she would not be leaving the hospital. Can I pray with you before I go? Heather asked. Please, she said, and she stretched out her hand. And Heather stands, and she took her hand gently, and then she went to put her other hand on the woman's knee, just very lightly, and 
that's when it happened. He grabs her hand, a little too forcefully, she thought at the moment, but all sorts of red lights now are going off in Heather's head, holding hands with the enemy in prayer. I mean, she has tried to forgive him, but he has made no attempts at reconciliation at all, despite being on the same team of a faculty at a university. I mean, how can they hold hands with all that's gone within them, with all that has been left unsettled? Heather says she doesn't know how, but she was able to calm and quiet her soul enough to be able to pray with the woman. A lot had to do with the woman that they were praying for and with, this woman who she herself had extended grace to Heather just a few days before she passed. In less than two weeks, she'd be gone. Heather would be asked by the dean not to attend the funeral. She'll never know why or who it was that didn't want her there. But for that moment, they stood hand in hand, praying together, Heather, this woman, and the one she called the enemy. At the end of chapter 9, Paul finishes with this. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And there's our key word again, charis, or grace. In this case, giving thanks. Grace. Paul reminds the Corinthians that everything goes back to God's indescribable grace, indescribable generosity, the the gift of Jesus, the gift of salvation, the gift of reconciliation, a gift that empowers and enables others to respond likewise with thoughts and gifts and actions. And so next week is Holy Week, friends. Next week, we begin to recount that indescribable last week of Jesus's life, a life that gave itself away to others over and over again, a life lived out of a deep wellspring of love, a life that reached out to bridge the gap between people that were seen as enemies. That is the life that we follow. That is the life that we put above all things, for we were created in God's image, friends, to reflect that same love, that same life that was in the life of Jesus. And as we get ready for Holy Week, remember, it's still Lent. May we spend time with the Holy Spirit, seeking to discern how each of us may still need to grow and change and deepen in our giving, in our stewardship of our time, in our relationships, like Heather shared with her story, and even as a church. May we, in what we say and do and how we give, may we reflect the love of Jesus and work to bring unity and reconciliation to our church, our family, our community, and this world. And all God's people said, amen.